Mark is where we have been, but we're taking a bit of a break for that through our Advent season. So today I'm going to direct you to 1 John in the New Testament and to get things rolling so that you can sort of approach this subject together just before we read our passage. I'm going to tell you about something that until just a few years ago I did not know that something existed on the planet. It's a sugar glider. Now maybe some of you already knew this. I didn't. But a sugar glider is basically a palm-sized possum. Go figure. They're marsupials, which means that they are mammals, and they're born in and carried around in a pouch in front of their mamas. Anybody remember another animal that does that? Kangaroo, good for you. You get five extra points for that. And the word sugar in their name comes from the fact that they eat sweet stuff. They eat nectar from various plants. They eat some acacia tree sap and some eucalyptus tree sap. So that's why they're sugar gliders. They also eat spiders and beetles. Maybe not quite so sweet, but good source of protein, I guess. And the amazing thing about sugar gliders is the second part of their name, they glide. They live in trees, and when they get up high enough, they can glide half the length of a football field in one go. Incredible. And their wings are not actually wings at all. They're skin that just gets stretched out. And they can even use their bushy little tails as rudders. And several years ago, Joy and I visited friends of ours in the Phoenix area in Arizona. And the boys asked us if we wanted to see their sugar glider. Now, I didn't know what a sugar glider was, but I had watched a few cooking shows. (laughs) And I wondered, were they able to get sugar hot enough and thin enough to make a little glider like those balsa wood gliders that I used to get in my Christmas stocking as a kid? And the answer is no. They would be rather fragile, even if they could. They came back out of their room with this flying hamster, basically. (laughs) And one of them held it up high. He stood up in an elevated area of their house and held it up high in his hand. And the other brother stood probably, I don't know, 40 feet away. And sure enough, that sugar glider leapt off of that guy's hand and glided right down onto the shoulder of the brother. And Joy and I went, well, who would have thunk? (laughs) Right up until that moment, I would not have been able to say, yes, I believe that exists. But because I saw it with my own eyes, I touched it with my own hands, I could testify, I could literally witness to the fact that I have seen one and I can testify that it glides, just like Wikipedia says it does. And so as we begin this Advent season, we're going to look at a passage that talks about some people who did not believe Jesus even existed until they saw him with their own eyes and touched him literally and physically. So let's look at 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Uh, Those of you who have been following any of my walks through the book of Mark know that I like to read from different translations. Most recently, I've been from the New Living Translation because it's really fresh and modern. But I urge people to compare translations because I think sometimes if you don't have a particular meaning in mind, you can read three or four different ones and the meaning starts to come more clear. And BibleGateway.com is a good place to find. You can even bring them up side by side and it's really neat to look at that. So I'm reading from the NLT on this particular passage, 1 John 1, starting with verse 1. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning whom we have heard and seen. 
We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. Do you get the idea that they've actually seen him with their own eyes? Makes it abundantly clear, I think. Well, around this time of year, especially in church, you might hear the word incarnation tossed about quite a bit. You don't necessarily hear about that other times of the year as often as you would around December. But we're going to look at incarnation. We sing about it every year. But what or who is it that people didn't believe prior to that first Christmas? In one of our carols that we will often sing in church, it kind of says something about this veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail thee, here's the word, incarnate deity. So the Bible is teaching us, and particularly we can see it in Matthew's gospel in the very first chapter, that the child whose birth we celebrate was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now those of us, if we have grown up in church, as I did, we heard that, we sang it, it seemed very normal to us. But let me tell you, there are a lot of people in this world when they say, wait a minute, conceived of the Spirit, born of a virgin, they immediately hit the timeout button and they go, that's not normal. They'll think that's way outside of normal. That sounds pretty out there to them. And that's why I think it was necessary for some of the inspired writers, like John, who wrote in 1 John, wanted to pass along these true experiences from people who had actually seen and touched this thing, this person that people are talking about, because it helps explain to us what this incarnation is all about. So the first two verses of what we just read gives us the teaching of Christmas, and the second two verses gives us the purpose. So you've got the what, and then you have the why. Let's look at the first two. This time I'm going to read it from the New International. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. I couldn't help but notice both times I read that that it doesn't say we have pointed the way to the eternal life. Something came along as a signpost. No, it says that this one that we have seen and touched is, in fact, the eternal life. So they're equating something really powerful and really unusual and very unique which sets Christianity apart in the person of the incarnate deity, Jesus Christ. So here's two things that we can learn from that. Today we're going to look at one of them. I wanted to cover them both, but we would be here until 2 p.m., and so the next one we're going to cover next week. The first one today we're going to look at how the birth of Christ is candidly doctrinal. It is candidly doctrinal. That's not a word that we've been kicking around very often, and you'll see why I think it's an important word. Next week we're going to look at why the birth of Christ is 
confidently historical because I think we need to know that there is unique evidence available for people from eyewitnesses early enough to the original events for us to count on this being a historical event. So first of all, the birth of Christ is candidly doctrinal. What do we mean by candidly doctrinal? Sometimes we need to reclaim the original meaning of a word that has been infused with negative connotations, negative meanings. Like I mentioned not too long ago, liver and onions. No, wait a minute, that's always had a negative meaning. So, that's the wrong choice, but you get the, the idea. Now, my dad would uh, disagree with me. He loved liver and onions, so he might say, what do you mean it has a negative connotation? But anyway, there are certain words that today, if we say them, they clearly don't mean the same thing that they might have 50 years ago and that we grew up talking about, including this word doctrine. Because sometimes people think doctrine means, oh, that means closed-minded. It means dogma. It means that you are not willing to entertain any other new ideas, and so you're not going to listen to anybody. That's what they think of, some of them, when they hear the word doctrine. Well, it is bad to be closed-minded. We don't want to do that. And yet, there are some reasons why I think doctrine is a great word, and we're going to look at why it is. Here's a truth that we should be aware of. Everybody, everybody is doctrinal, even unbelievers. Everybody's doctrinal, and I'll show why. Firstly, a doctrine is a belief that we base our life on. We insist upon it. We're willing to defend it, in fact. We're willing to engage in debate over that if we think strongly enough about that. And so everybody's willing to do that in this faith position that is really a doctrine. Now, many of the doctrine people live by can't really be proven scientifically. A doctrine is not something we normally prove empirically by observation or experimentation. And yet, a lot of people operate by doctrine. Secondly, a doctrine is something we stake our lives on. It's something we commit ourselves to. It's, some people would call it a core value. It's so deep and so strong that we literally would be committed to that. And thirdly, a doctrine is something we defend. We contend with other people over a doctrine. We're willing to challenge others over the, the doctrine that we believe. So even though we don't want to be hateful, and we shouldn't be, or closed-minded, we shouldn't be, we still should be willing to defend something we strongly believe in, especially if we think that thing is going to bring us life, as First John says. Let me use some fictitious people called Alex and Bob as an example to show you what I'm talking about in real life. That's Alex on your left, Bob on the right. Now, Alexandria, we're going to call her Alex for short, is a Christian. And her friend Bob, we're going to call him Bob for short, it's short for Bob, because his parents didn't want to name him Robert, I guess. I don't know. So one day, Alex has coffee with Bob, and she says to Bob, Bob, because I really care about you, buddy, I really wish that you could believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he is really Savior and Lord. So I'd like to list for you, if I could, several of the reasons and some of the evidence that I've looked at that has caused me to actually place my faith in Jesus and to believe in him. I'd like to do that. I'd like to try to convince you to trust him the way I have because I think he is the giver of real life and not just here on this earth, but forever. And what does Bob say? Well, Bob says, well, Alex, nobody can know anything definite about God and you should not try to persuade other people to see things your way. That's just not right. Now, let me ask you, this is interesting. When Bob tells Alex that you cannot know anything definite about God, 
what has he just done? He's expressing a faith position. The belief he has expressed, I believe that we can't know anything definite about God, is not scientific. It's a belief statement. It's not objectively empirical. He has stated a belief, his doctrine. So what's Bob doing when he tells Alex that she shouldn't try to convince other people of her spiritual reality? Well, he's actually doing to her in that very moment what he is telling her that she shouldn't do. It's just reversed. He's trying to persuade Alex that his way is right and that she should accept his way. So Bob is doing the very thing that he's forbidding her to do. Funny how that works. So that little illustration helps us see that both Alex and Bob are doctrinal people. That's kind of the point here. We're all doctrinal. They both have faith positions. Now Bob's position is doctrine doesn't really matter. You just live a good life. Alex's position is, oh, we all need a savior. We've all fallen short. We cannot save ourselves. That's her position. So a lot of people will say, oh, well, doctrine just really doesn't matter. We get all up in the pictures about stuff like that, and all it does is divide us. What matters is that we just need to live a good life, and then we'll go to heaven. But do you know what a person has just done by saying that? They've just expressed a doctrine. Their belief statement, I believe that a good life will result in going to heaven, is another way of saying, I'm not so bad that I actually need saving. That's another way of saying, I don't need a savior. And so that is their doctrine. That's their belief. And to the inspired writers of the true experiences of eyewitnesses in the Bible, they all say, oh, we all need a savior. We have all fallen short. Paul makes that abundantly clear. I think most of us, if we do any soul searching at all, we know that we've fallen short. We're aware of our shortcomings. That's why Jesus came as the incarnate deity. When we're talking about the because of Christmas, why of Christmas, he came because we could not do that for ourselves. We needed a savior. We needed somebody to extricate us from the bondage of sin and to pay that penalty. So both Alex and Bob have a doctrine. They're both willing to bet their lives on their doctrine. Bob is willing to bet his eternal destiny on the doctrine that no one can know anything definite about God. And he's trying to silence Alex from expressing her doctrine by claiming that it's wrong to try to talk someone else into believing a different doctrine than the one they are betting their life on. Hmm. So I guess what that means is that both Alex and Bob are contending for the faith. It's just different faith. One is faith in Christ, the incarnate deity, and the other is faith in themselves, faith in faith, faith in whatever it is that they have arranged for themselves so that they don't have to worry about that other kind of doctrine. So Here's the thing. Alex is being candidly doctrinal. That's where this word comes in, candidly. She is open about it. She's authentic. She's right up front. She says, I'm a child of the light. I don't have to live in darkness. There's nothing for me to hide. I want to shout this from the rooftops. I want everybody to know that Jesus is the answer. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can find this abundant life that helps us thrive that people want so badly. But Bob, on the other hand, is not candidly doctrine, doctrinal. He's quite frankly, very likely not even aware that he's doctrinal because they don't typically want to use that word. So if that's the case, then Bob is kind of what 
Paul the Apostle would describe it. He's just being in denial. He's just suppressing truth. So we don't want to be obnoxious. You know, there's, there's a difference between the offense of the cross and just being plain offensive. We don't want to be plain offensive, but there is something about defending something we think is really important, not just to us, but if we love somebody else, we want them to have what we have because it's so great. Here's the thing. We all have assumptions about God. We have assumptions about the afterlife, life after death. Some people say, oh, there is no such a thing. We're just going to be worm food someday, so eat, drink, and be merry. This is what we've got, and then we'll make the best of it. Others say, no, there's evolution. It's come along, and we are just being nice to each other because it's a learned trait for survival. And we would say, yeah, we disagree with that. I don't think there can be true love without God because he is actually the source of that. And yet, all of us, deep down, we all want the same thing, ultimately. We want to thrive. We want a life that matters. We want to have a sense of purpose, that we're not just here as worm food, that we're not just here as a cosmic accident. We want to believe in something that matters and that helps us thrive. And that's what being candidly doctrinal about Christmas is about. By believing what Christ came to do for us, we're being candidly doctrinal that Jesus, the incarnate deity, came to do something that nobody else could do, and it sets us free to have a thriving life. Let me talk about thriving for a minute, and you'll see what I mean about that. Let's use snow skiing as an example. Uh, I wish Denny were here. He's got some great and hilarious snow skiing stories. They were doing a tour of New York City. We hope he makes it back. But if you take lessons from somebody instead of just going out and saying, oh, this can't be that difficult, I'm just going to strap some skis on my feet and go for it, you know, I would probably want to take a few lessons and see if somebody could tell me how I'm supposed to do the right things before I just fall down the mountain. But there are two different kinds of instructors. Here's one that you could get. You could get an instructor that says, you know, there are many ways to get from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain. All are effective. Some are more expedient than others. But the main thing is, you should just have fun. Follow your heart. You just do you. Do what feels right to you. And most of all, enjoy the ride. How do you think that's going to work out for you? I think if I were to take that approach, I would be digging myself out of a snowbank every three minutes, and then they would have to haul me off the mountain on a stretcher because I would run into a tree. Or if you wanted to thrive and, well, frankly, if you just wanted to live, (laughs) you should take the instructor who believes in doctrine. They believe there are certain things that are immovable, like trees. And there are certain trails that are harder than others. And say, just because it says black diamond, that's not like a a playing card. Don't go down those. (laughs) There are things you need to know that you don't swoosh until you've learned how to snow plow. You know, just do some things that are going to keep you alive, and then you'll be able to enjoy it better. There are boundaries that we're establishing for you for your thriving. You see the difference? One is, just be free, you be you, and just have fun, and you're going to have a great time. And what is the end thereof? It's destruction. The other is, yes, I'm going to live within those boundaries. I'm going to respect the things that can really harm me so that when I'm on those skis, I'm enjoying myself so much more, and I'm going to live. Both are good things. Here's the point. We should not shy away from believing things that are always true and that allow us to live and thrive. So, we can be candid about Christmas. 
I really think we can. Christmas is one of those things we should not shy away from. Christmas is candidly doctrinal. John tells us in the text that we looked at that the invisible has become visible. That the intangible has become tangible. That the untouchable has become touchable. That that which we couldn't hear very clearly has suddenly become crystal clear and we hear specifically what we need to do and why we need to do that. So it's made God personal for us, which is why I like the word doctrine if it's used appropriately because we can be candidly doctrinal that in Christmas we're celebrating that God became personal. And I love that about him. Now, the incarnation, it's not normal, definitely, but it's not impossible either. One of the reasons that we're afraid to talk about the doctrine of the incarnation is because it requires a belief in something that is definitely out there. Is definitely not normal. Christianity is unique in all of the religions on the planet. It is unique. And one of the things that makes it unique is that we believe in this doctrine of Christmas. But we also believe that not only is it not normal, it's not impossible. Because with God, all things are possible. Let me refer back to a previous message not too long ago when I said that one pastor I heard made a lot of sense. He said, when God created the universe... And all of the things that are ordered specifically for us to thrive in that, as long as we're living within his order, he has established the preconditions for a miracle. What do I mean by that? I mean that if everything were constantly being crazy and Bugs Bunny was coming up into your front yard or hopping into the car with you and things that were happening like the ocean would turn upside down once in a while and strange things, if that was normal, we'd all go, huh, yep, just another normal day in paradise. But it's not. We count on things being the same all the time. So that when God decides to really get our attention, what does he have to do? He's going to step outside of that because he created it. He has the power to step outside of it. He's going to do something really abnormal and unusual because that way we can know, ooh, that's not normal. (laughs) So that the people, like when the man was let down on the mat in front of Jesus and he heals him, pick up your mat and walk. Gave him authority to forgive sins because he said, who gave you the authority to do that? And well, just so that you'll know that I have the authority, pick up your mat and walk. And the people praised God and said, we've never seen anything like that. That's a miracle. That's why when we see things like the incarnation, which is in fact a miracle, we can be candidly doctrinal and say, I believe that. I believe in miracles. Because I believe God who created the universe can certainly do that. And we respect him for that. I'm glad he did. I would hate to have a boring God that just decided to send me a telegram. I'm glad that he came inspired to do what he did so that we can see the Godhead so much more clearly and touch him and hear from him. Well, Christianity says that God is the one so personal that he would become as one of us, giving up so much. And we know that through him all things are powerful, including a virgin birth and the incarnation. So that he could become Emmanuel, Literally God with us, physically with us, present with us. So next week we're going to look at how the birth of Christ is confidently historical, which means that there is reasonable evidence. We're not making this evidence up. It's reasonable scholarly evidence for us to believe in this doctrine of Christmas that I'm talking about. Let me wrap up today's look at candid doctrine and uh, I had a really good time talking with my buddy David last week and on the way to meet with him at our favorite coffee shop I passed the crossing guard 
at the elementary school that we live close to. And I pass that guard every week because I have the same basic standing meeting every week. And every week, she's out there in the cold, dressed for the weather, wearing her high-vis vest. And she waves at every person who stops at that intersection. And I stop there. So I get at least one smile and wave every week. And last week, I, there was nobody behind me, so I was able to roll down my window and say, I really appreciate your waves. It gets my day off to a good start. Because no matter what I was thinking about, even if I woke up with a kind of a, hmm, rucka, rucka, I don't know. You know, you wake up sometimes that way, and you get to somebody who actually sees you as a human being, and they have a personal contact with you. They recognize you as being a valuable person, worthy of her time. She waves at you. My endorphins kick off. I'm smiling. By the time I turn the corner, I think, this is going to be a good day. Just because of one wave. And that got me to thinking, too, about an interaction that Joy and I had about three weeks ago or so in a large store. We were walking down one aisle, and it was kind of narrow because somebody had a cart there. So we had to walk close to a couple of guys. Now, I want to be very cautious how I say this, and I want to be kind. They were blessed with a lot more melanin than I have. So they had a different skin tone than I have. And one of the things that I try to do when I'm around anybody who's different, no matter what their background might have been, is to just connect with them little look in the eye, hi, how are you doing, or excuse me, I have to step by, or whatever. So I did that to these two fellows. But they intentionally looked the other way and walked past. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, there's a little bit of that flesh in all of us that immediately started to think, well, that was a slight. That hurt. I'm mad about that. You know the flesh that starts to weave and work on you a little bit? And it's like when you get something stuck between teeth, you start fiddling with it. Now, you've got two choices when something like that happens. You can choose to just keep nursing it and working on it and building it up and just boiling it until it becomes really... And then you can turn around and the next time you encounter somebody like that, you can take it out on them. And you can just propagate that and keep putting it out there. Or you can do what the doctrine of Christmas allows us to do, which is what Jesus did for us, and you can redeem that by giving it to the Lord. And somehow he transforms that energy from this negative assault or this hurt, this offense that we've taken into ourselves. And instead, we turn it around and we pour it out as love and acceptance and maybe a smile and a wave or whatever. And then I got to thinking one step further. This is where my talk with David came in handy. Uh, I'm going to have him around because I come up with the best illustrations just by having coffee with him every week. And that is that what if there were 200 other people in that store who are believers, who believe in the doctrine of Christmas and believe in the Christ of Christmas. And what if every single one of those Christians did the same thing we did so that they were assaulted with kindness? You know, just heap coals of kindness on their heads and they're all going, how you doing? Good to see you. Because we do have an army of believers on this planet. God has positioned us strategically to make a difference in our world. And we think, well, what difference can that make? Oh, I think it can make a lot of difference. I think that the small, tiny things become big things because they're multiplied through the body of Christ. And it's the common graces that God makes very uncommon. In fact, it's uncommon because we don't see it very much anymore. And if the Christians who would start displaying what Christ did for us would say, I give that hurt to you, Lord, 
I forgive that person. Take it away. Help me to love my enemies. Help me to bless those who persecute me. Help me to be one of an army of people continually showing them what Christ looks like. Then all of a sudden, it starts to have this ripple effect. And yes, I think we can make a difference, even with the common graces that we display in our world. And I'm grateful for it. So next time I see that crossing guard, I'm going to say, you gave me the best sermon illustration, and I appreciate you, and I'm so glad that she does that, because how many people, I mean, if you just extrapolate what happens with that, if there were three people in a day that were getting ready to go in and just shout at somebody because they had a bad morning, and they see her, and it helped de-escalate some of the stuff they were thinking about so that they're not as anxious anymore, maybe she saved a life. I don't know. We don't know what God's going to do with our tiny little efforts of just being grace agents in the world. But because God was a grace agent and he came right into our world, he's sending us into other people's world. We can be grace agents because we believe in the doctrine of Christmas. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's pray together. Father, I see in my own life how I struggle with slipping back into those fleshly reactions to people, the knee-jerk reactions. And I pray that you would continually remind me through your word and through my interactions with fellow believers that I just need to abide in you so that daily I'm picking up my cross, that I'm dying to self, that I'm trying to live out the life that you are helping me to live because you're helping me thrive and that even the small things that I do, the small common graces that I give to some other people in the world might just be used by you to show what Christ looks like more clearly. And I pray when the opportunities, uh, the door is open to them for me to even speak more plainly about why there is a difference in my life, I pray that I'll have that kindness and gentleness and I'll have a ready answer and I'll be able to communicate. Well, it's Jesus Christ in my life. So, Father, today I pray that every one of us, through your Holy Spirit, will grab hold of one thing that we're getting ready to do this week to show some common graces to the people around us with the idea that you're continuing to pour your army out and that the gates of hell cannot even prevail against this church of yours. Thank you for that. I pray it in Jesus' name. Thank you for the Jesus who is the incarnate God, no longer veiled but present and seeable and hearable and touchable. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.